0: And welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today additional information about the tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org our prayer is that you will be blessed by the word of god today turn in your bibles as we join dr danny for another edition of tabernacle today
1: amen the choir has a couple more songs for us but we decided to have the message here in the middle and uh, I'm so thankful for them and the musicians and of course all the sound team that put in that extra time to get things ready. Uh, I think about how beautifully Stacy has lit up the cross uh, during this time here in front. You know, uh, what if instead of the cross here there was an electric chair and showed the wear and tear of use over the years. Would that bring home the reality of that horrible execution that Jesus underwent for us? perhaps somewhere in the room someone is wearing a necklace you know and you've got the cross on your necklace i doubt there's anyone here with an electric chair on their necklace but it brings home the brutal death the staggering death and its implications for us of christ bearing our sin dying as a common criminal dying as a political rebel dying for the sins of the world you know back in the first century in the roman empire in a place some distance from the capital of rome there lived a man that claimed he was divine As a god, he claimed to be a champion for his people, and he amassed thousands of followers. Many started to think that he was the one who would deliver his people from their bondage to the Roman Empire and restore their heritage as a people. He actually survived an attempt to kill him in a very unusual way, which led his common followers to believe that he was invulnerable, indestructible. They were convinced that this one could not be put to death and that he had somehow triumphed over Rome. That is, until the emperor arrested him and cruelly executed him in his presence. The followers of this man saw their supposed champion die and they left the site of the execution heads down, dejected, and we wonder what happened next. Well, in that case, the man stayed dead. His followers disbanded and the movement died. And I'm speaking, of course, of Maricus, a man from Gaul of the Boyan tribe who was executed by Emperor Vitalis in Rome in Lyon in AD 69. He had survived another time when he was thrown to wild beasts, but the beasts refused to eat him, but he didn't survive this bloody execution in front of the emperor. And when he died, his movement died with him. As far as I know, not a single person on earth today claims to be a follower of Maricus who died in 69 A.D. And the same thing happened for many other would-be deliverers within Rome who were crucified. Their movements died when their followers saw them publicly shamed and executed as no better than slaves or common criminals. So my mind's eye goes back to that day 1990 years ago april 3rd 33 AD is what many scholars think it was and i think about those disciples gathered in a room on that first easter sunday morning they were there they were gathered together jesus was dead it had been a truly unbelievable 3 years with him so many amazing things had happened and but surely with his crucifixion it was now over they'd seen him brutally die they'd seen uh, that he was not coming back. Maybe in the back of their minds, they may have remembered the three explicit times he had told them in advance that he was going to be betrayed at Jerusalem and arrested and tried and crucified, but that on the third day uh, he would rise again. But death is so final, so formidable, that they couldn't wrap their minds around that actually being something that could happen. You just die and then that's it. He had raised Lazarus to life, but they all knew Lazarus was going to die again. Surely, with this crucifixion, that was it. It was over. If they had really believed his words about rising on the third day, they wouldn't be huddled together in shock, fear, and discouragement in Jerusalem anyway. What would they be doing? They would be on the walk to Galilee. He had told them, When I rise from the dead, I'll meet you in Galilee to give you uh, final instructions. But uh, they had a hard time believing it. Well, what changed everything for them? The same thing that changes everything for us. They saw him dead, and then they saw him alive. And these scared men and women who had huddled together in fear all of a sudden became bold witnesses. Those who, only one was with him there with the ladies when he was crucified. The others had scattered. They all became people willing to themselves die and some even die on brutal crosses themselves because they'd seen him dead, they saw him alive, and they now knew that his blood had ratified every promise he'd made in the Gospels. Christ died for our sins as the perfect sacrifice, but his resurrection from the dead testifies that he's now our eternal high priest. Because he lives, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter where Paul talks about these things, and hopefully you're there already, but if you haven't turned your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 15, I'm sorry, and I'm going to read verse 12 through 23. It says there, now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Let me read that one again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. I want to talk to you about the power of an indestructible life. In Old Testament days, when a person wanted to be forgiven, they would bring a sacrifice to the high priest. They would confess their sins to the priest. And what would happen is the sin would be symbolically transferred from their head to the head of the sacrifice. And then it was killed. The sacrifice had done its job, it had been slaughtered, it had been died. The sin had been transferred to the sacrifice and it had died. But the sequence wasn't all the way done yet. the sacrificial transfer of sin still had to be made but it had to be activated by what the priest would do next you know what the priest would do next the high priest would then take the sacrifice in the blood and offer it up on the altar to make atonement before the Lord to be a propitiation to be a a atoning sacrifice a take the place sacrifice and the Lord from his mercy seat would accept the atoning sacrifice and the person's sins would be forgiven As Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. What an interesting phrase if you look it up in the Old Testament sometime. Look up this phrase, The priest shall make atonement. It occurs about 20 times, and each time it records that the priest shall make atonement. After that, it says, And they shall be forgiven. So the sinner came recognizing that they were a sinner. They symbolically transferred their sins to the sacrifice. The sacrifice was killed, it had done its job, it was finished. But then the priest had to take the sacrifice and make the atonement for the sinner. And then it says God would forgive their sins. Do you understand what's happening? The Old Testament sacrifice was sufi- sufficient for application, but it needed to actually be applied by the high priest to take effect so when christ offered his sacrifice there on good friday or good thursday or whenever it was it was Nisan fourteen it was the day of the passover and that we know for sure whenever that happened on that friday that we call good friday that time christ offered that time sacrifice when he died as john the baptist had said the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world john the baptist was anticipating that what the Old Testament sacrifice had done for temporary forgiveness Christ had now done for eternal forgiveness all the Old Testament Saints they had looked forward to what the Messiah would done they looked forward by faith to God dealing with their sins they knew the blood and blood of bulls and goats couldn't really take away sin but they were looking forward and they by faith were saying we believe God will handle it kinda like when you use a credit card right when you use a credit card, you're uh, buying something and taking it home, but the uh, payment hasn't been made yet. You're anticipating the payment. But this side of the cross, we look back and it's more like using a debit card. Christ did his work on the cross, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and now when we use our debit card of faith, It's based on the sacrifice that's been made timelessly for all time. It's pretty cool. The Father accepted that sacrifice, testifying to that acceptance by raising Christ from the dead and bestowing on Jesus the name that's above every name. So you've got a hand there in 1 Corinthians. Turn to your right a little bit and get to the book of Philippians. It describes how God, the Son, the Son of God, Left heaven's comforts, came to earth, emptied himself. He was still God on earth, but he didn't use his deity as to, to advance anything of his own personal agenda there. It was for God's, the Father's agenda in saving sinners. And so in this Kenosis passage, this emptying passage, it tells us a little bit more about that. And then God exalting him and his glorified human flesh back up to heaven. Philippians two five says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. One thing I love about the scriptures is how practical and theological they are at the same time. It's amazing how things are intertwined just like that. It talks about what Christ did, the significance of that. At the same time, it says, you yourselves wanna have a a similar attitude. You wanna put others before yourself. You wanna be willing to make sacrifices for God's greater purposes. And boy, did Christ ever model that. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He couldn't lose his deity. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, God in a body. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Son left heaven's comforts and came to earth. He took on human flesh, so the Son of God also now was the Son of Man. And he made the ultimate sacrifice for us there on the cross, his body lay in the grave but then he was raised the third day and god exalted him god raised him up and not just to life again for a couple months on earth where he instructed his disciples and then ascended to heaven but when he ascended to heaven he took back to heaven something that had never been before there before exalted human flesh and so he came down from heaven as god the son the son of god he went back to heaven as the son of god and son of man and what really blows my mind is That this was so beautifully in the eternal plan of God that Daniel made a prophecy about the Son of Man one day coming for a second time to judge the earth. When Christ returns the second time, what we speak of there, calling him the Son of Man who will come back on the clouds. And he called him the Son of Man. He, he his mind was swimming as Daniel saw that prophecy because he's like, there's God and there's somebody like us up there, but he's a perfect one of us. And, and I see him coming to earth, and he actually sees what will only be true at the second coming of Christ, and he made possible by dying and rising from the dead. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to save the entire world. But it's efficient to save only those who draw near to God through faith in Jesus, our high priest. Every time a sinner turns to faith in Jesus, the perfect high priest applies the blood of the perfect sacrifice to them. And they are eternally saved. That's why I said earlier, Christ died for our sins as the perfect sacrifice. But his resurrection from the dead testifies that he's now our eternal high priest. Because he lives... He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Let's see where that last phrase comes from. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. So you go a little further than Philippians even and you get to Hebrews 7. Hebrews takes 3 chapters to talk about how Jesus Christ in his role as high priest is not from the priesthood of Aaron and the of the Levites the Aaronic priesthood from the Levites, but instead goes back to an earlier priesthood, yes, an eternal priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 said, today I have begotten you, you're a son forever, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and it's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. So here we are in Hebrews 7, and it talks about this temporary priesthood, the one of Aaron, where under the Mosaic Covenant they had to make sacrifices over and over again, and this eternal priesthood that is Jesus Christ that made a sacrifice that counts forever and as a high priest continually applies that sacrifice any time anybody believes verse 11 of chapter 7 if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron verse 12 for when there is a change in the priesthood there's a necessity a change in the law as well for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. In other words, the Messiah, the King of Israel, was going to come from the tribe of Judah. Well, you can't be from two tribes at once. He's from the tribe of Judah. The priest came from the tribe of Levi, and yet the Messiah would also not just be a king, but a priest and a prophet. So, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Verse fourteen says, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who's that? Back in Genesis, Abraham met Melchizedek and offered him tithes. And they, uh, you know, bread and wine was brought out. They took communion together. And Abraham not only tithed to Melchizedek, uh, it says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, as in Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem and priest of God Most High who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life this priest this eternal priest has an indestructible life a few verses earlier it said that he was without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of god he continues a priest forever for its witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of melchizedek look down at verse 22 this all makes jesus the guarantee of a better covenant the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office death meant a new high priest had to arise But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, here's this great verse that I've already quoted. He is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. You know, if you need saving today, Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost. You say, Pastor Danny, you don't know what I've done. I don't want to know what you've done. You don't know what I've done, but I do know what Jesus did for you. And I do know that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Amen? Amen. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, Jesus ascended to heaven. But the Bible teaches right now he ever lives to make intercession for all those who are now or will be his. He's praying for you. He's praying for you. He is praying for you. In Romans 8, it says, The Spirit inside, the Spirit of God inside, God the Holy Spirit's inside you, praying for you, interceding for you, and He connects you and heaven together so that as you pray, God gets you right with Him, and then He has a purpose and plan for your life and a retirement plan that's out of this world. Look what it says For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's holy, say He's holy. He's innocent, say He's innocent. He's unstained. Say he's unstained. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, as Philippians 2 had said, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. They had to do it over and over again, offered sacrifices, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. Since Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He's got an indestructible life. Romans four twenty-two through 25, we're putting it up on the board here. It says, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. One of the greatest verses early on in the scripture, Genesis fifteen six. It says, Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He said, God, I believe you are. God, I believe you're who you say you are. God, I trust you. And God said, when Abraham placed his faith in God like that, his faith was counted, it was reckoned as righteousness. It was as if Abraham was righteous when he really wasn't righteous. He was still sinful old Abraham, but God said, that's my righteous Abraham there because he's got faith in me. And the Bible makes clear that's the only way to be righteous in his eyes. Bad news is you got to be 100% righteous to make it to heaven. The worst news is you can't do it. But the good news is Jesus dealt with your sin problem on the cross. He did more than that. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him, so when you turn to him in faith, your sin is timelessly dealt with by the perfect sacrifice, because he's alive, he can pull out the offer to you, that if you trust in him, his righteousness will count for you forever before God. The words that was counted to him were not written for His sake alone, but for o- ours also, say ours also. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our sins, our trespasses but raise for our justification back to 1 corinthians fifteen had jesus died and stayed dead some people might look back to jesus words and try to live them out as a philosophy he taught great things didn't he he he, he gave great teaching but almost I think almost everything he taught was somewhere or another in the Old Testament as well. They had just gotten legalistic with it rather than love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In his teaching, he reminded that. He set the perfect model for that. You could see living out the faith as a philosophy, but back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that would just be a waste of time if Christ didn't really rise from the dead. This is more than just... Uh, some words to live by that make you a little bit different than those living by some other hedonistic philosophy. Look back at First Corinthians fifteen, verse fourteen. Verse fourteen, he says, "If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Faith is empty; it's meaningless." Look at verse fifteen. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is a lie; it's untrue; it's a falsehood. Look at verse seventeen. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. And we are still in our sins, still lost, still under judgment. We're just wasting our time if Christ hasn't really risen from the dead. Why? Because there'd be no living advocate to apply the blood. The sacrifice would be perfect. We'd have no way to apply it. So 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Look at verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised... If Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised, our loved ones who knew Christ aren't in heaven. They're just in Hades awaiting judgment like everybody else that uh, never turns to the Lord. Look at verse 19. It says, if in in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Christ has not been raised, we're the biggest losers on earth. People most to be pitied. Why? Why? Because we are making life choices that don't make any sense if this life is all there is and there's no future hope. It makes no sense to take up your cross each day, to sit on your electric chair each day, the equivalent of. Being called to deny self and live to God's purposes instead of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know, many people say they believe in Jesus, but many also show by the choices they make, they don't really believe in Jesus. They really believe this life is all there is. For those that have that consistent walk and say, Jesus, you're Lord now. I believe you've risen from the dead and I will follow you. It makes no sense to try to live by his teachings if... He hasn't really risen from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, it makes no sense not to just do what the uh, ancient philosopher said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you just die. And that's the way I thought before I was a Christian. This life is all there is. Satisfaction and purpose must come from sinful, carnal things you do in this life, and who's to call them sinful anyway, right? Who's going to judge? If God's not there, if God's not there to give an account to, then why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die? And in fact, those who reject our faith think we're losers like that, don't they? (laughs) They think we're missing out on the only life they think there will ever be. What's fascinating is we know that the Apostle Paul had been very, very religious He had tried to live legalistically the Old Testament law as a Pharisee, one of the strictest orders. He had put hedges around different commands to be even more certain that he wouldn't violate them. So what's terribly fascinating is that Paul actually agrees with them here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ didn't rise, no one who believes in him will rise either, and we're engaged in one of the biggest wastes of time the world has ever known. So Paul says, it's true. If it's just in this life, this is not worth following Christ. But, look at verse 20. But in fact, say that. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we're going to talk more about that first fruits word in just a moment, but look at verse 21. It says, As a man came death, referring to Adam and Eve's original sin, sin entering the world, being passed through the gene pool to everybody that lived after that, except Christ himself, the second Adam. As by man came death, Adam Eve's original sin, bringing in spiritual and physical death, a sin nature we all inherit, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, who's the man that brings the resurrection from the dead? It's Jesus. That's what he's talking about here in Corinthians 15, verse 22. All in Adam die. All those who have had that physical birth that never turned to Christ, it says all of them die, but all who are in Christ will be made alive as surely as he is alive. It says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What that means is for those that go out of the first Adam's family and are transferred to being in Christ. Some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament are those two words, in Christ or in him. The moment a sinner turns to Christ and follows him, believes in him, and trusts him for salvation, they go from being out of Christ to being in Christ. The early believers used to draw for each other a little ark, a little boat. They were reminding themselves of Noah's ark. When Noah and his family were in the ark, they were saved from judgment. They were saved from the coming judgment. And when believers are in Christ, they will now be preserved from judgment. Unbelievable. Well, verse 23 says that, each in his own order. And then it says Christ the firstfruits. That's the second time it uses the word about Jesus that he is the first fruits. He's the firstfruits of who? Those who believe and will follow him to eternal life. Now, this past Wednesday, our Jewish friends began celebrating the week-long festival of unleavened bread. is so big for that in our mind, we often call it Passover. But they refer to the entire week-long festival, eight days of uh, festival, as the Feast of unleavened bread, but it's really three festivals in one. It's Passover that starts on the first day, it's unleavened bread that starts on the second day, and it's first fruits that is on the third day. On the first day they celebrate Passover which reminds Israel of how God raised up Moses and delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. Pharaoh would not let Israel go, so you remember the story, God sent 10 plagues. Had Pharaoh softened his heart, there wouldn't have needed to be one plague, but he hardened his heart. He defied God. And when we defy God, it gets a little bit worse each time God tries to get our attention. In mercy, he doesn't give up on us, he keeps trying to get our attention because if we repent then we can have him work in our lives and amazing can happen. Our sins can be forgiven and go from there. But it took 10 plagues, Pharaoh defied God each time, and the final one was the death of the firstborn but there was a way to keep your firstborn from dying a perfect lamb could be sacrificed as a substitute and you could take the blood from that and then go to your house and apply it over the door apply it over the door it's interesting the Chinese every year during their Chinese New Year's uh... put red banners above their doors and you wonder if somehow in the economy of God that was put in there so people could witness to the Chinese about the gospel one day and connect that story. Every year on Chinese, they put banners over the door. They're not sure why, but we know why. God was making it easier to evangelize them later on. The Jewish folks would put the blood over the door, and when the death angel came, he passed over. He didn't bring judgment to that home. He passed over it. Mercy was shown instead of judgment. It was so beautiful, and that Became the first thing they'd celebrate every year in the religious calendar of Israel, the Passover. And these other festivals, of course, were put around. But only those who believed what God had said about that actually did sacrifice the lamb and then take the blood and put it over the door. Others did not, and they lost a firstborn all throughout Egypt and any Jewish person that didn't get in on that either. And Passover went on to become so formative in the identity of the people of israel under the old covenant and it was the same week that he died that jesus at the passover meal instituted the lord's supper because he was bringing in a new covenant in his blood that we celebrate when we take the lord's supper each and every time we do how we wish all jews and gentiles on earth would turn to jesus and let him be for them the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world This week, Jews around the world are still looking for the Messiah to come. In fact, as they take Passover and other festival times, they say, next year this will be in Jerusalem, and we're praying for the Messiah to come as well. I want to show you a heartbreaking quote from the 4th century AD. This is from a Jewish work, the Midrash Rabbah, so it's 300 years after Christ. Look what it says. Rabbi Berechiah said in the name of Rabbi Isaac, as the first Redeemer was, so shall the latter Redeemer be. As the first Redeemer Moses was, that's what the latter Redeemer will be. That's what the Messiah will be like. They say Moses delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage, and the Messiah will deliver us out of bondage as well. Isn't it sad? They missed it. I mean, anybody can get in on it now, Jew or Gentile, but all the writings explain why Jesus is not the fulfillment of those prophecies and that Messiah. But indeed, Jesus is the new Moses who leads the new Exodus, amen? Based on a better Passover sacrifice, the day after Passover begins the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for our Jewish friends. All this is described in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 23. To represent purity, Jewish homes are swept free of all dust and bread. That is, uh, they don't want anything around the house that could be leaven and mess up the dough, make it rise like bread does. They instead want more cracker-like unleavened bread, because leaven in the Bible represents evil, error, and decay. Psalm 16:10 said of the Messiah, "You will not let your holy one see decay. You'll not let him see corruption." And so believers look at that and say, "Gosh." Just like Passover celebrated, Jesus is our Passover. He died as our sacrifice. And he went in the ground, but his body didn't undergo decay because he was going to rise again. Jesus' body was not going to decay in that tomb. He was going to rise again. On the third day, our Jewish friends celebrate the feast of, you guessed it, first fruits. On that day, they celebrate the barley harvest, the first crop to ripen in the spring. Among other things, the priest will wave that. Look, the first fruits of hopefully a great harvest to come. So the first sheaf is cut and in a meticulous ceremony is presented to the Lord. So during the third day of the three in one spring festivals of Israel, the Lord's acceptance of the first fruits by the Lord is an earnest or pledge on his part that there will be a full harvest, a massive harvest. Now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of all those who believe. He conquered death, and everybody that believes also will follow him. That's why he said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this?